0: For those of you who are staying with us, I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 14. Now, of course, last week um, we were not in 1 Samuel because we had our missions conference. And so we were uh, privileged to be able to have um, Clyde Hodson be able to come and talk to us more about prayer. And for those of you who are new with us, one of the things that we do typically in our church is we, um, we work through, as part of our sermon series, we work through different books of the Bible. And right now we're currently in the book of 1 Samuel. If you are a visitor here with us, we do actually have there in the back um, ESV scripture journals. They are available for you for free. You're more than welcome to grab one. Um, and so what they do is they just have a scripture on one side and a place for you to put either your sermon notes or for you to even take home and for you to do your prayer journaling um, using that site as you go home and you continue to reflect and meditate upon God's word um, throughout the week. But we are in chapter 14. And so there's somewhat of an artificial pause that we took between chapters 13 and 14. Chapter 14 is uh, very much a continuation of what had already begun in chapter 13. Um, and so this is really, we're, we're, we're filling in with the cliffhanger of where we left off, of where the battle was taking place. And we'll fill in with that a little bit more in a moment. But as we, we continue on, let's pause and ask for God in his grace um, to open our hearts and our eyes to his word, that we might receive his truth into our hearts and that it might change us. Father, we thank you for your grace and for your goodness towards us. We thank you for your word. Father, we know that though the grass withers and the flower fade, your word will stand forever. And so, Father, we thank you for the grace that you have given us this morning, um, that we might come and we might examine and we might look and we might ingest your word. And so, Father, as we pray for your spirit to quicken your word, that it might go quickly into our minds, into our hearts. And from our hearts, it might move out into our speech, into the things that we do, and the way that we glorify you, Father. Leave us today changed, not by any clever rhetoric, but by your word, as it is applied to our hearts through your Holy Spirit. Lead us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, as we've been looking through the book of 1 Samuel, We've talked a lot about what does it mean to worship. We've talked a lot about what does it mean to be people of obedience. And sometimes they've been somewhat challenging to us. They've, we've looked at them and, and we've examined the text. And I don't know about you, at least it's been convicting for me in many regards. But it's also I, for me, and I hope for you as well, it's given me different pictures and portraits of what life with God could look like that is beautiful, that is hopeful, that is encouraging. It's given me a longing to follow God more closely, not out of guilt and shame, but because we see as the path of beauty. But if you're also like me, sometimes we can look and examine our own lives and as we try to follow in this path of obedience, as we try to be a people of worship, sometimes it just feels like things aren't quite right. In some ways, it almost feels like we're putting the emphasis on the wrong saliva, so to speak, where something just seems a bit off. And we can even see this as we look around. We see some people, as we look around, that are trying to live the life of faith, and it's beautiful, it's inviting, it moves in. And there's others, it seems like you try to clarify, and it seems like they're still very religious, but there's something somewhat off-putting, something that we want to almost kind of move away from to a degree. It seems exhausting within there. In many ways, our passage today shows and highlights those two comparisons. A way of faith, a life of worship that is beautiful, that is inviting, that is bold, even shall we say, and another that, while very religious in its, in its movements, is actually there's something you look at and you say, there's something wrong here. And of course, the comparison we're going to be looking at is the comparison between Saul, the king, who we've been talking about, who last time in chapter 13, we saw that in, because of his disobedience... God is going to no longer establish his kingdom forever. And he's confronted in his act of disobedience. we're, We're beginning to see a descent of character, a descent of wisdom within Saul, showing more and more how unfit he is to be king. But the interesting thing is he is juxtaposed against his son is compared against his son, Jonathan, who, as we look at Jonathan, he's someone that we look at and we say, I want to have a life of faith like that. What is it? Is it? Is it because of his actions? And My thesis today is it's not so much about the actions, but the heart of faith that is inviting to us within there. And so we pick up in chapter 14, and again, this is somewhat of an artificial, we we're reminded that where we are, we're right in the middle of kind of a scary battle place within there. Uh, the Philistines um, were attacked. So Jonathan, or I should say Samuel, anointed Saul as king. And we saw that the reasons they wanted a king really was because they were looking for security. They wanted a, a king who would raise a standing army to give them a sense of security against their neighbors. They see all these different foes all around them. And of course, rather than looking to Yahweh, looking to their covenant God as their source of one who would protect them, they wanted to have a king so they'd be like all the other nations. And so God gave them a king, Saul. And we saw in chapter 13, he did exactly what they had wanted him to do. He formed a standing army, a standing army of 3,000 troops. 3,000. Seems pretty impressive to me for that time. And in this, this troop, Jonathan, uh, Saul's son, took his regiment and attacked a, an outpost, an out, a Philistine outpost in Geba. And was successful. And so they trumpeted all land. Look what Saul has done. He's attacked and has triumphed against the Philistines. But the Philistines, well, reasonably pretty upset. And so they mustered this huge, enormous army of chariots and horsemen and spearmen together. This enormous army that dwarfed this small 3,000 army that they thought would give them such security as a nation. And not only that were the size, but we saw that there was an incredible technological advantage to the Philistine army as well because they had a monopoly on iron technology. And they didn't allow the Israelites to be able to possess that kind of technology. So in all these army of 3,000 people, only Saul and Jonathan had actual proper military equipment, swords. Whereas the Philistine army had access to them. And what we saw, the results of this, is this standing army of 3,000, which the people thought would give them this sense of security, they trembled, they were afraid, they were scared. And so we see a significant number of them begin hiding quite literally, in holes. They're finding cracks and crags to go hide into. And so they abandon ship. And another group flees on the other side of the Jordan to get as far away as they could to a place of safety. And so, this army of 3,000 that was already scared because of its insignificance to its foe got dwindled down to 600. 600 against thousands and thousands of Philistines. As Saul began to panic, he unlawfully offered the sacrifice. Now, if you remember from a couple weeks ago, one of the things that we saw that was very clear is that Saul had received instructions already prior to this on the way things should go. Most likely, there their instructions going all the way to back to what we saw in chapter 10, when Saul was uh, anointed by Samuel to be king, which he told him, go and wait for me for seven days to make the sacrifice, uh, and then go and attack the, you know, Do all that is within you. So there's a sense of standing orders that Saul himself already understood. And he violates, he disobeys. And there's an interesting thing because now what we saw as we ended in chapter 13, Samuel leaves. Samuel departs and he goes back to where he was. And then Saul takes his small 600 units, and now we find out the rest of the story. But the reason it's significant Samuel left is because what we're going to see is Samuel, the one person who is able to speak of the Lord in this time, is going to be replaced by another. And we'll see who that is here in just a moment. So we pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 14. Now it says this, one day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Geba and the pomegranate cave at Migron. And the people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitab, Ichabob's brother, son of Phineas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. Now, those of you who have been with us, immediately you begin seeing name recognition. Where do we see this? Oh, wow, Eli, the priest who was blind, the priest and his family who did not have spiritual discernment. Samuel has been replaced by this priest now, and this priest is wearing what's called an ephod. And so I believe I've got a picture of an ephod that's up here. This is what an ephod looked like. This was a priestly garment, and so there's 12 stones on it. And so there's obviously a lot of symbol, symbolism that was recognized, but it was also used during that time as a kind of almost a, a way to um, look for God's word or look for uh, um, direction from the Lord using this ephod. Um, Kind of complicated, and don't ask me to explain it, because if I'm being honest, I don't understand it myself, the way they used it. And so what happened is, if we go back, there was they were station, and there, was a, there should be a picture of, of Micmash that's up there. And so this is what you can see right here. See where that town is? That is essentially where the Philistines are camped out. Notice where they are. That is a very high ground. Notice as well, there is that ravine that is in there. is taking place that very steep ravine and so on one side you have the Philistines on the other side you have the 600 people of Israel now what we see here is Jonathan has looked at that all the people are scared but Jonathan has told his armor bearer hey let's cross which would involve them going from the high point there on one side going down, being in that, in that ravine, very much exposed to the enemy, and let's go up because there is a small Philistine outpost that's about a half mile away from the larger standing army of the Philistines. He's saying, let's go down and let's take a look at that garrison. And he doesn't tell Saul that's taking place. Verse 4. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on one side and a rocky crag on the other side. That's what we saw within that picture right there. And the name of one was Bozaz and the name of the other was Cena. And one crag rose into the north, into the front of Michmash, and the other on the south, in the front of Geba. And Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come! Let us go over into the garrison of these uncircumcised. Now, notice what he's saying here. He's acknowledging these other people, they're not part of God's covenant promises. So you see a little bit right there, but then notice what else he says after this. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Now, notice what his statements there. First of all, he is showing a confidence where so many other people are saying, wow, we should be really scared because our army is so small. Where is Jonathan looking to say who is our salvation? Where is Jonathan looking for his source of confidence? Not to himself. It's not to the army. So unlike the, the people of Israel, as it says, Hey, for us to have an army or or to have security against all our invaders, against all of our enemies on all of our sides, we need to have a standing army that will show us protection. Where is Jonathan saying this is our source of security? Where is Jonathan saying if we're going to have victory, it's going to come from this place? He's saying it's going to come from the Lord. His confidence and his focus is completely on Yahweh. On the fact that he has chosen Israel to be his covenant people, his promises within there. But notice what else. Within this boldness, notice what he says. He says, it may be, right? It may be that the Lord will work. So he is filled with confidence, but he's also not presumptuous towards the Lord. He's not presumptuous. He has absolute trust in God's sovereignty, but he understands that God is not a genie, is not a cosmic vending machine to just do whatever they please. He recognizes that they submit to God's sovereign will, to God's plan, to the way God chooses to work. God does not submit to his will, his plan, his way of doing things. He, is looking to, he has absolute confidence and faith in God, but he does not presume upon the Lord. And so he develops this plan to try to discern it. Now, it's worth noting that this is not a very good text to help you try to figure out a workflow to how to discern God's will. This is not a good place to do this, okay? So don't take this and look and say, okay, if I'm trying to figure out if I should do X or I should do Y, I should do these steps. That that will get you into big trouble, okay? This is the way they... And we have to trust the Holy Spirit was at work in Jonathan in these moments, okay? So verse 7, And he said to his armor bearer, said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. And then Jonathan said, Behold, we'll cross over uh, to the men and we'll show ourselves to them. In other words, They're going to cross down into that. and In that process, they're going to reveal themselves. Because the Philistines, they're on the higher ground at that point. They're in a very secure tactical position. It says, we're going to reveal ourselves to them. And he says, verse 9, If they say to us, wait, and we'll come to you, then we'll stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we'll go up, for the Lord has given them to our hand and this shall be a sign to us. Now, what is he saying? He's saying, if these Philistines decide that they're going to leave their tactical place, their high ground, their superior tactical position, and come down to them, then we'll recognize that God hasn't given them into our hand. But if they call out to us and say, Hey, climb up this ravine and come fight us, then we'll take that as a sign that this is God's hand. Is in it. Now I think most of us say, What? That makes no sense whatsoever. But yet this is he's not saying this the easy way is the way we're going to interpret that God is in this. Actually, the far more difficult way. Verse ten, or excuse me, verse eleven. So both of them showed themselves into the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And this is a, a strong comment of derision. It's Saul basically saying, Look at these varmin coming out of the holes. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Notice where his confidence is and what he believes the victory is about. It's about God's victory for his people, not about Jonathan at this point, right? And then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet. Again, so his way of preparing for the battle is climbing up this ravine. Just that act in itself is going to be exhausting and tiring. They get up to this very tactically positioned garrison within there. And says uh, in verse 14, or excuse me, verse 13, then Jonathan climbed his hands and feet and the armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer killed them after him. So in other words, as they were fighting and engaging, Jonathan would fight them, would knock them down, and his armor bearer, would, who was right behind them, would then deliver the killing blow. Right, And then at that first strike, when Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within... Uh, as it were, half a furrow's length of an acre of land. That's about half an acre. And there was panic in the camp and in the field and among the people and the garrison and even the raiders trembled. And the earth quaked and it became a very great panic. And so people looking at this, they saw this is a supernatural event. They saw that something is going on. This should not have happened that these two men would take out this garrison of 20 people. And so then they send off, the word gets to the larger uh, group, about a half a mile out, and they recognize something's going on. Now, part of me wonders if many of them are remembering what happened with the Ark of the Covenant that we saw a few chapters down when they tried to mess with Yahweh's God. Maybe there's some remembrance of what's taking place. They begin to panic. They recognize that there's something else going on here in place. God is using, God is supernaturally turning them and turning their hearts into panic. And on top of that, he brings an earthquake to tremble them to help, help further illustrate that there is something divine taking place amongst the Philistines. They panic in a, in a great deal, and there's a great deal of irony within this. Because what we saw as we ended in chapter 13, the, the army of Israel was trembling at the Philistines. But yet God doesn't need any of those army to make the Philistines tremble before him. He does it on his own. We continue on in verse 16. And the watchman of Saul at Gabeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. So Saul had his network of lookouts to be able to keep an eye on the Philistines, and they're seeing something crazy is going on. And so Saul said to the people who were with him, count and see who has gone from us. And when they counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor-bearer were not there. And so Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of the God here. Now, if you're looking at this from an NIV, it says bring the ephod. There's a bit of a textual issue. This is one where I actually think the NIV gets it right. I do think it is an ephod. Bring the ephod here, for the ark of God went out at that time with the people of Israel. Now, while Saul... was talking to the priest, the turmoil into the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. So in other words, stop with this process of looking for an an oracle from God. We got to get in there because the battle's hot and we're going to lose our momentum. We're going to lose the timing within that. So he says, withdraw your hand. And then Saul and all the people who went with him rallied and they went into battle. And behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow. And there was very great confusion. So in other words, the Philistines, as they get into the battle, they're already fighting amongst themselves. And now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time, who had gone up with them into the camp, even they turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. So in other words, there was a group of people, they weren't Philistines, um, Uh, Were they natural, you know, Hebrews who had kind of defected to the Philistines side to kind of keep the Philistines from fighting against them? Or maybe they were just trying to, hey, let's pick the winner. We don't really know why they were fighting for the Philistines, but they were fighting for the Philistines. Well, in all that they're seeing, they decide to turn on the Philistines and they start fighting the Philistines. Those who were formerly the enemies uh, who were fighting with the enemy. Uh, They had turned and were fighting with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, and they too followed her after them into battle, so that the Lord saved Israel that day. And that's the key. The Lord, the Lord saved Israel that day. And the battle passed beyond beth So in other words, that's where the, the larger camp that was about a half a mile away was done. It moved past them. You see, they were looking for an army to be just like all the other nations, but God was still showing them their security came from the living God, who was their true king. Unfortunately, things, what should have been a huge among us, tremendous victory, they turned sour pretty quick. Verse 24. And the men of Israel were hard-pressed that day. And so Saul had laid an oath on the people saying, curse be the man who eats food until it is evening and I am avenged of my enemies. Notice what Saul did there. He made it about himself. He made it about his enemies. It's no longer Yahweh fighting for his people. It's no longer about the enemies. He turned in, in his kind of almost narcissism, his insecurity of leadership He makes it about him, and in making it about him, he put a burden on other people. In other words, they weren't allowed to have any food until it was evening. Now, keep in mind, if you saw, if you remember from the picture of Michmash, that's pretty hilly country. So just moving around in that country in and of itself is going to be extremely exhausting. And keep in mind, on top of that, they're also fighting. So you can imagine how exhausted they would be. Now, that can sound kind of pious, right? But the, it's a piety that's driven by ego, not by faith. And so none of the people had tasted food. Now, when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dripping, and no one put his hand to his mouth for fear, that, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of his staff and was in his hand, and he dipped it into the honeycomb and put his hand into the mouth. And his eyes became bright. And one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with the oath, saying, Curse be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. And then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of the enemies that they had found. For now the defeat among the Philistines had not been great. Now keep in mind, this is Jonathan. The one we'd already seen shows incredible boldness, incredible faith. But his faith was in God. It wasn't a narcissistic faith. It was a faith that made him bold but not, shall we say, stupid. I just remembered I said that word in the past and somebody's parent got onto me. I apologize. So, shouldn't have said that word. When he says the people had troubled the land, that's also looking back to the time of the judges. There was another one of the judges that, if you were to read the book of Judges, had put a, a, somewhat of a silly curse, an oath upon the people. And the text said that they had troubled the land. So this was quite of an indictment on Jonathan upon his father. Verse 31. And then they struck down the Philistines this day from Michmash to Egilon. That That's further moving towards the, the, uh, to the west. "...towards the Philistines, and the people were very faint. And the people pounced on the spoil, and they took the sheep and the oxen and the calves, and they slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate with the blood." And they, and they, so in other words, they were so hungry, as soon as it was evening, they were famished. And so they have the, the oxen, the, and these were ritually clean animals that they could eat. But according to the law, they weren't supposed to slaughter them on the ground, uh, in a way that didn't have an opportunity for the blood to drain out. They are supposed to put them, be able to kind of hang them up and, and allow the blood to drain out properly. Well, they're so famished, they're just trying to get some food. And so they slaughtered them and they eat them with the blood. And, so, and then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone here. And Saul said, disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat and do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him in that night and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar unto the Lord. It was the first altar he built, verse 36. Then Saul said, let us go down to the Philistines by night and plunder them until morning light and let us not leave a man of them And they said, do whatever seems good to you. The priest said, let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, shall I go down to the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? He did not answer him that day. And Saul said, come here, all of you leaders for the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be Jonathan, my son, he shall surely die. And then he said to all Israel, you shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan, and my son, shall be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. And therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant today? If this guilt is for me or for Jonathan, my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if the guilt is of your people Israel, give Thummimim. I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that right. I'm, I'm an Okie. And Jonathan said to Saul, and you were taken, but the people escaped. And Saul said, cast a lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken, and Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of my staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. So, In other words, you don't quite get it from the ESV, but he's saying, I just ate a little honey. For that, I'm going to die? And Saul said, God, do to me and more also, you shall surely die, Jonathan. Now keep in mind, he's trying to figure out who sinned. Where have we been in the story so far? Chapter 13, we already know Saul sinned. He disobeyed God. Samuel made that pretty clear. The people sinned. They were eating meat mixed with blood. But here he's going to kill. Jonathan, not for violating Yahweh's law, not for disobeying Yahweh, but for disobeying him. Some legalistic curse he has put upon the people. Then the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation for Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not be one hair of his head who shall fall to the ground. For he has worked with God. This day, So the people ransomed Jonathan. They did not die. And when Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, the Philistines went to their own place. You know, as we look at this story, there's something, as we read it, we can read very intuitively, there's something wrong with Saul. We can see there's a big difference. We can see there's a comparison to Jonathan and Saul. We can see something there, but sometimes it's a little bit difficult to kind of place our, our thoughts on it. Both of them are acting piously. Both of them are, would appear, seek to be find, seeking God's counsel. But yet we see there's something, as much as there seems to be so much overlap in some of the things that they're doing, they're worlds apart. What is that? What is going on with that? You would say, at least on a superficial level, they both have faith. You would say that Saul has at least some sort of faith that is taking place there. How is it manifesting itself so differently? How do we understand? Because we we oftentimes we want to have that kind of faith, that, that freeing faith of Jonathan. But we find ourselves, it feels so much more like Saul. And let me suggest to you, as as we're looking into this, what is the difference that is here? What is the difference between these two types of faith? And here's what I would say, and when I look at this, when Jonathan, as he looked at his faith, he saw this as God's story. When he looked at his life, and he looked at all that was taking place, he saw that this was God's story. And he saw himself as just one part of what God is doing. It wasn't Jonathan's story. And he wasn't certainly trying to get God to do whatever he wanted. But rather he viewed this as a larger part of God's story. And he sought to be faithful within that story. Whereas Saul, in many regards, I believe, viewed things as this is his story. And he tried to get God to work in it to do as he wanted. To do as he pleased. Through his through his religious actions. And that, that seems so subtle, but it's all the world that is different. You see, when we understand this is God's story, we look at life and we see it's far bigger than our, what we're doing and our circumstances and what we're going through. We see it as a larger story of, in which God is at work and we see and then he created all that is. And in the fall, there was this brokenness that corrupted his good world. We see he's in this act of redemption, redeeming his people, ultimately accomplishing that redemption through Jesus Christ. And is now in the act of, in addition to redeeming it, restoring all things. We see that larger framework at work, not just on a cosmic level, but in a way that affects our everyday lives. And when we understand that as that way versus we have our own stories that we're writing, we have our own stories that we're crafting, these stories become larger than anything. And what we're trying to do a lot of times with God is we just try to bring God into that. And in some ways, that inevitably becomes a way to try to control God. But when God is the larger story and we're seeking to find our place... Some amazing things happen. It seems on, on one level, God would become more, we would become more insignificant, and certainly we do. But what's amazing that even though we become more insignificant, everything becomes far more beautiful, far more wonderful. And we actually find ourselves, in many ways, far more valuable. far more filled with dignity and wonder and awe. As we look at it and understand that we are part of God's story, we, God becomes not a genie or a cosmic vending machine, but he becomes our personal father. Just as, as we are kids, our stories are shaped by our parents as They shape our stories. They direct us through their discipline. God is our father when we understand he is story. He's far more personal. There isn't the, and we'll talk about this in a minute, our worship isn't about just doing magic formulas to please this God, but rather he is lovingly shaping our lives in his direction. When we understand that this is all one big part of God's story, another thing amazingly happens. One story keeps us from comparing our stories with other people's stories. That keeps us from comparing our story with other people's story. So in other words, when we understand that we're just all one part of God, what God is doing in this world, I'm not sat there and looking at my story and saying, well, this is my story, but why does this person get this story? And why does this person get this story? I want my story to be more like this, or why is it this person get a different story? We understand it to be all one part of God's story, and that frees us from looking around at other people and comparing ourselves to them. which ultimately frees us from narcissism. It frees us also as well from trying to find our significance from our story, from what's going on in our place, from the way things are being crafted and shaped. Rather, our significance comes from the God who is creating our story. It comes from knowing Jesus Christ as our Savior. Our significance doesn't come, isn't found from how dramatic or how how telling our story is and ultimately what it does, and this is the most beautiful thing, is it surrenders our control. It surrenders our control. But another thing that it does, when we understand that this is one story, is we understand, and this is so important, God does not need us. We need him. God does not need us. We need him. Thirdly, when we understand it's one big story, what we see is it turns every act into an act of faith. It turns everything that we do, not just the big things, not the big story-defining things, but everything we do, every act of love, every part of our worship becomes applying ourselves to the larger understanding of who God is and what he is doing within this world. And so every act becomes... Filled with purpose and meaning. When we lose sight of God's story. And we get focused alone on our own stories. We get lost in ourselves. I believe that's a lot of what's going on with Saul. He's gotten lost in himself. And the fruit of that is exhaustion. The fruit of that is we get fearful. Because we're worried about where our story is going to end up. Is it going to end up the way we want it? We get prideful. And ultimately, we get alienated from others. So what does it look like for us to then... I mean, that's kind of an ethereal concept, right? It's God's story, not ours. What does that mean in application? What does that mean for us to truly say, okay, we want to practically in our everyday lives understand the story as God's stories? Well... It actually has a very practical application, and that application is worship. Application is worship. You see, the call for us to be able to view our life as God's story means us to be very intentional with our worship. Now, we're all going to worship. You're going to worship. You're going to worship. Even if you're not a believer in God, you're worshiping something, right? Your heart is being moved towards something. But when your worship is focused on your story, what you're trying to do is you're trying to bring ritual into your life to make God do what you're willing to do. But when you understand that this is all God's story, our worship, what it does is it teaches us to see God's story at play. What do I mean by that? It shapes us. It shapes us because, number one, it frees us from performance It frees us from shame. Our worship no longer becomes about rules or obligations. It anchors us in hope. And ultimately, it helps us see every moment as meaningful. You see, Saul was going through a lot of worshipful acts. He was going through a lot of worshipful acts, but they never pulled him into God's story. Rather, he was pulling God into ours. And so we can pervert. We can do the same things. In fact, you can come in here to this worship service today or whatever worship service it may be. And we can have people doing the exact same acts of worship. And some people will be trying to pull God into their story, but others will allow their worship to pull them into God's story. What do I mean by that? When we're trying to have, when we're focused on our own stories our worship becomes ritualistic, and we see that. Saul was very ritualistic in all the things that he was doing. And, so, and I'm not talking about a high church versus low church sort of thing, but rather it's the idea that um, to please God, I do these things. So in, in other words, it's turning worship into a way of earning God's favor, and a way of earning God's blessings, or earning God's attention within there, proper worship though instead points us to the god of grace and love and so we affirm his story we affirm what he is doing we affirm his gospel his grace and his love and so it frees us from ourselves when worship is about our story it becomes about superstition We think that these become magical things. Well, I went to church, and therefore God should bless me this week. Or I read my Bible, therefore God should bless me this week. I've done something that should please Him. Rather, worship that pulls us into God's story enables us to see it's not about what we do, but about who God is, what He has done. It pulls our hearts towards Him worship that is focused on ourselves becomes legalistic it becomes well this is what you have to do you have to make it look just like me and so we become like the pharisee and the tax collector and one of the pharisees says lord thank you i am not like this tax collector i do this form of worship i do this form of worship our worship becomes more comparative within there and then our worship ultimately then becomes about our preferences None of this is life-giving. We're about to enter into a liturgical form of worship called communion. And for throughout church history, this has been the pinnacle of worship. And for many people, you may have grown up, and this was a form of worship that maybe was very ritualistic. It's something you did maybe to gain God's power. But when we think about what this is, a form of worship, it pulls us actually into the story of God. It pulls us into the God of the Bible who rescued his people from slavery in Egypt and formed them into a covenant community. It forms us into the story of God who loved so deeply that the eternally begotten Son of God took upon flesh and tabernacled amongst his people and ultimately gave his life so that we might have life. It pulls us into that story, and we see as we take the body of Christ and the blood, we recognize, wow, I get to be part of what God is doing, this larger story of redemption. It pulls our eyes off of ourselves and onto Christ and his larger story. When we do that, our communion becomes amazing, transformative, not because of magic, but because it reorients our hearts in a world that is trying to get us to focus on ourselves. It reorientates our hearts to the true place where there is rest and peace and hope. And so I invite you today as we come to worship through communion, You get to be a part now of what God's doing in his larger story as we join with saints throughout history and through the world that recognize and remember what God did for us in Jesus Christ. As we declare that we are made right with God simply by what Christ has done, his act of salvation, his love. As we get to boldly declare in a world that seeks to divide that we have been made one body, Together by his grace. And as we did get to declare how God's stories end, that this will end with God's people feasting in the heavenly banquet. It orient, It orients. It places our hearts in the story of God. We didn't invite all those who actually have trusted in this story, who've trusted that this is more than a story, but is a reality of God working in this world. That Jesus Christ wasn't just a good teacher, he wasn't just a good man, he wasn't just a myth to teach us how to be good people, but rather he was the true, eternally begotten son of God who gave his life as ransom for many. That he rose, he literally rose again from the dead And he offers us his salvation by grace through faith. If you have done that, we would invite you to come and recognize and remember whose story this is. To place your hearts into truly worship today. If you've not done that, we would would ask that you not come and partake of the, 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 the communion elements today. Rather, instead, we would invite you to receive Christ. For this story to become your story by faith, by simply trusting that when Jesus Christ died on the cross for sins, it was sufficient. There's nothing else you can do to make yourself right with God. Believe that He died for your sins and believe that He rose again from the dead and commit yourself to Him as Lord of your life. Do that today. For those of you who come, you partake of the elements, come, partake of the bread, take of the cup, and then go to your seat and we'll do the institutions, the elements, together as a body. As you hold and as as, uh, Joseph comes and he plays the communion song, remember the story. Thank God that by grace, he allows you to be part of the greatest story in all the universe. That's your story if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the great story of redemption that is ours in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that the goal of our worship isn't to awaken you to our plight or to our need, but rather is to (laughs)